0: Good morning, Oak Ridge family. We're continuing on in our study of the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is a statement of faith formulated by the early church. It's based on God's word and confessed by the faithful down through the years. And particularly, we're going to be talking about, I believe, in the communion of saints. So let's just stand, and we're just going to uh, say together the last paragraph of the Apostles' Creed and confess it, as so many believers in the past have confessed over the years. Together, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and everlasting life. Amen. You may be seated. The communion of saints That's what we're talking about this morning. And so the question comes to me, who are the saints? And I'm offering you a little multiple choice question here. There's only one right answer out of A, B, and C. A, a select number of super-Christians. B, a professional football team in New Orleans. And C, all Christians. How many say A? How many say B? All right, Bob. <laughs> and how many say C? Okay, so we know what the saints are, and this is true because it's biblical. The scriptures make it clear that all of God's people are saints, Saints, not just a few select who do better than everyone else. And, for instance, we find this in 1 Corinthians Chapter 1 and verse 2. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy or called to be saints, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. We find this several other places. For instance, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1 to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. If the the saints were the the super-Christians, that made the elders and deacons to be less than super-Christians. And so I think that it refers to everybody, everybody who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether you are in a church body or not, whether you're in the local church, does not qualify you to be a saint, it's your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that qualifies you to be a saint. And so, you have a saint preaching to you this morning, because I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have St. James, who is preaching to you this morning, and there's St. Bob, even though he believes that the Saints are football team in New Orleans, and there's St. Sharon, and and uh, there's St. Natasha. There's St. Marty. Yes, you're still a saint, Marty. <laughs> now, what I want you to do, if you know that the person beside you is a saint, if you have the courage, you turn and you greet them right now, greet them by name, and call them a saint. Go ahead, do it. Now a lot of people are laughing here, you see. A lot of people are laughing. And, and it's kind of fun, you see, to refer to people directly as saints. I like to do that. Not because it's fun, just because it's fun, because it's but because it's true. And we're stating a truth. And when people come into my office in counseling who are Christians and I know them to be believers, I often often greet them that way. Here comes Saint Mary. And sometimes they're a bit demure and they, they, they're dismissive of it, you know, but I persist and I say, yes, you are a saint. And the one who's going to counsel you today is a saint as well. It's true. And so we're talking about the communion of saints. So we now know who the saints are, but what about the, the communion of saints? Now, This is related to what we were talking about last week, because last week we were talking about the church and how the Lord gathers his people into local congregations of believers so that they can practice community, so that they can practice a kind of loving fellowship with one another. And the church is a lot of things, as we were discussing last week, it's based upon the truth of God, the, the truth that was, was first brought by the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth that was preached by the apostles and prophets. The church shares a wonderful hope of Jesus coming, and we come to encourage one another in hope. And The church also comes to share giftedness with one another and build one another up in faith. But the church and the communion of the saints is preeminently and primarily about loving one another in the church. Communion is all about loving one another. John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35 says this. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The words of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's giving us a command, and he says, I want you to love one another. The Lord speaks this command three times in this section of John, because he really meant it. When the scriptures repeat things, it's because it's for emphasis sake. And so three times he says, I want you to love one another. I want you to love one another. I want you to love one another. Now, the measure of that love is this. I want you to love one another as I have loved you, says the Lord Jesus. I was really touched by the songs that we sang this morning. As we're remembering once again the great love of the Lord Jesus as he poured out his life on the cross for us. And that is the singularly most true measure of love that the world has ever seen or will ever see. And that is Jesus loved me and he gave himself for me. And throughout the ages of eternity, when we get to heaven, we're we're still going to be celebrating that seminal, seminal truth of Jesus on the cross, giving himself for us. And we're going to be celebrating in song forever the love that was poured out at Calvary's cross. So the way the Lord Jesus loved us is our standard. It is our measure in how we are to love one another. We're to put our whole heart into it. We're to give it our full attention and our full commitment. That's the way the Lord Jesus loved us. He loved us and he gave himself so totally for us. And in this verse, he also speaks of the proof to the world that we are his disciples. The proof that we are his disciples. It's loving one another. Now, he could have said other things when he talked about the proof that we're true disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, he could have said, you'll be proven to be true by the purity of your doctrine. It's not our doctrine. It's not our righteousness. It's not our giftedness. It's not our joy. It's not our peace. But it's our love for one another. And that is the singular most important thing that Christians ought to evidence so that the world will know that we're the disciples of Christ. Everything else is good. Everything else is needful. But this is most primary. That's why the Bible over and over again asserts the greatest thing is what? Love. The greatest thing is love. And it's the most the most powerful and convict convincing witness to the world that we truly are God's people. It's our love. So that begs the question, what is love? We need to define this term. I I like definitions, and I strive hard. I spend lots of time in my mind trying to figure out definitions of things because I have to explain these every, these things every day to people who are questioning these very things. And so many people come in and they've, they've, they've been struggling in life and they've had knocks and they've had, had real pain in their life and I talk about love and they say, what is love? Because you see, they've been disillusioned by it. They thought it was one thing when really it's quite another thing. So we need a good definition. Now, you could turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and that's the, 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 the love chapter where at, at weddings they often have it quoted. Love is patient, love is kind, and various descriptors of love. And I would submit to you that's not quite a definition. It's more a description of what love is. And love is all of those things that is found in 1 Corinthians 13. If you want to write it down, 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4 to verse 8 and read it later. That's a description of love. But I find my definition of love somewhere else. I find it in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 19, verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 9 says this, Do not return evil for evil or insult for insult, but give a blessing instead. Not evil. Not hate, not insult, but I want you to give something else. I want you to give a blessing. And I submit to you that this is a definition of love that covers all the different aspects of love that you're going to find throughout the world. Love is a commitment to give a blessing. Really simple. I'm committed to do something good, and when I, when I'm committed to do that, it comes out in a giving, and what I'm giving is not bad, it's good. I'm committed to give a blessing. So there's three parts of the definition, and the first part is this. Love is a commitment. You could also say love is a decision. Love is a choice. It is an act of the will. Now this idea of commitment, or Deliberate choice to love is foreign to many. and Many people might be willing to say, well, I love that uh, girl or I love that boy, but if you said, are you committed to love them, they would immediately back away from that. They say, well, I'm not there yet. Because we don't look at love as a commitment. We tend to look at love more as good feelings. And uh, we think that we go from like to love. Uh, liking is feeling good about somebody, and love then is really, really feeling good about somebody. And uh, we tend to use the expression falling in love. Now, if you're falling in love, you don't really choose to fall. It's not something that you do, it's something that happens to you. I was walking along and I fell into a hole. Well, love is not a black, dark hole. Love is a wonderful experience of falling into a giant soup of pleasant joy. But it's not something we choose, it's something that kind of happens to us. And this is the stuff of Hollywood where, you know, boy meets girl and immediately they're smitten with one another. Now, for me, that wasn't Hollywood. For me, that happened many, many years ago when I met my wife in the basement of a church. We were having a youth fellowship and I was new there. And I looked across the room and I saw this lady with beautiful strawberry blonde hair. And uh, then I saw her face and then I was a believer. I, I was smitten. So, whenever I say that might be against being happy and having joy and feeling good and romance, I'm a romantic. I love feeling good about loving. The only problem is, it's not love. It's feeling good. And romance and that that falling in love is not about love yet. It's about really, really feeling good. And here's the truth. Love itself is not a feeling. Love is not a feeling. Love is a commitment of the will. And I would submit to you that love comes with feelings, and it's wonderful when you feel really good about the person you're choosing to love. Then love and like go together really well, and it's all wonderful. But love comes with a lot of feelings, because when you commit to love, you open yourself up to pain as well as to pleasure. Because when the object of your love leaves you, then you feel a great emptiness in your life. You pine for your loved one. Love opens you up to sorrow. And when your loved one is in trouble and has been wronged by somebody, and because you love them and care for them, love opens you up to anger. I'm really angry because somebody is messing around with my loved one. Love caused lots of feelings, lots of troublesome feelings. It's really painful to love. So when we associate love always with pleasure, we get into trouble. Love is not a pleasure in itself. That's not the definition of it. Love is an act of the will, not a state of feeling. Secondly, love is a commitment to give. Give. It's an action of giving. Now, immediately, we see the difference between loving and liking because liking is all about receiving something. You think about it, I like that. It, what you're saying is, it gives me pleasure. It gives me joy. So when you're liking someone, it's all about receiving some good vibe. When you're loving someone, it's quite the opposite. It's about being willing to give, give. You saw a beautiful little baby, Caleb, up here. And uh, uh, he gives joy to Rob and Tammy. He gives joy. And he feels pleasure when he's being taken care of. But it's going to take a while for that little boy to learn how to give back. And I'm hoping he does, and I trust he does, start to give back to his parents. And when he makes a determination that he's going to give something back to his mom and dad, that's when he started to love his, his mom and dad. Babies don't love They're wonderful receivers of love, and they're great little bundles of joy. They don't love. They've got to learn how to give back. And when they give back, they're lovers. The giving back is the loving part. And that's why, you see, the Bible tells us that we can even love our enemies. Why? They don't give us any joy. We don't have any fun. We don't have any pleasure. But when we choose to care for them, when we choose to give to them, we're loving them. You can love without liking. And sometimes that's the test of love. Loving somebody when you don't like what's going down. So love is a commitment to give a blessing. To give a blessing. A blessing is something good that will benefit the other person. It means helping them. It means caring for them. It means building them up. Paul said, I've, I've been given a, a task to build you up, dear Christians, not to tear you down. When you're busy tearing something down or tearing someone down and gossiping and speaking evil against somebody, you are not loving, you are hating. Because love is about building up. And hate is the opposite. Hate is a commitment to curse, to tear down, or to destroy. How wonderful it is when somebody gets hold of a hater, when God gets hold of a hater and actually turns him or her into a lover. I've seen this transformation. And I know that in certain areas of my life, there have been, there has been hatred and God has had to cleanse me from that destructive practice of hating, committing to curse, committing to tear down, committing to destroy, and he has washed me from that. I'm a work in progress, and he's making me into a lover. And this is what it says in Titus chapter 3, verse 3, and this is just a a verse that is not up there on the screen, but I'm going to just mention it to you. Titus chapter 3, verse 3 says this, At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, Enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures, we lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Now, that's a description of a lot of hearts out there today. I went into Toronto and I was uh, driving kind of slowly because I was uh, going along Queen's Key and trying not to get run over by the trolley. Uh, because trolley tracks were there, and it was new, uh, a new road for me. I was trying to find some place. So I was going kind of slow. Well, the fellow behind me was so steamed and honking his horn, and by the time I turned left, he pulled up beside me, and he pulled down his window, and he shouted various sundry obscenities at me. You know what? He's a hater. He's a hater. And I had to guard my heart and I said, God bless him. Maybe in the past I would have said, same to you, buddy. So that's what love is. It's a commitment to give a blessing. So how do I love? How do I practice this commitment to give a blessing? One day the Lord Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment of the law was. And he replied, This is the greatest commandment of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. The second commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. And when the Lord said this, he told us that first love ought to go to God and because we love God, we choose to love others as well. But the Lord also gave a good synopsis of the areas of our life that need to change in order for us to be good lovers. And he mentions four areas of life. He says, your heart has to be on side for you to love. Your soul has to be on side for you to love. Your mind has to be on side for you to love. And your strength has to be committed for you to love. So we're going to look at these things. What does it mean to love with all your heart? Well, we've already given you the big clue, and that is this. You make a decision. You make a decision. You make a choice. We always have a choice. I had a choice as to how I was going to respond to that man who was so angry with me. I had to make a choice. and. I said, God bless him. God bless him. I chose to love him instead of hating him. It's so easy to hate, but it's a choice of the will. Now, the heart in Jewish thinking, is not the center of emotion. We often use that. and On Valentine's Day, we have these hearts and flowers. You know, it's, we, we picture the heart. and And we think of heart as being the center of emotion. In Jewish thought and in Scripture, it is not the center of emotion. It is the center of your will. It is the center of your decision-making and your choices. You make a decision. This is where love begins. We choose love. We choose it. It's not a matter of feelings. Not waiting for some fine feeling to pass our way before we love. We're choosing to do something that will give a blessing. And it comes out of our heart. That is the center of the person. That is why it's good to pray every day the Lord's Prayer. I've mentioned that from the pulpit, that the Lord gives us a prayer, or a prototype prayer to pray every day, and it's called the Lord's Prayer, and it says in the second line, Thy kingdom come, in other words, I'm gonna serve the kingdom, and it's a kingdom of love, and so Thy will be done, I am going to set my will to what God wants me to do today, I'm gonna be a lover. That's how you do it. You make a commitment that you're going to love somebody and then you do it, no matter how you feel. And I get people out there, they're saying, but it wouldn't be real if I didn't feel it. Your feelings are not the arbiters of truth. I wouldn't be true to myself if I didn't feel it. Yes, but you would be true to God. Which one's more important? Being true to yourself or being true to God? And... And so forget the idea of, well, it wouldn't be real because I don't feel it. Love is not about feelings. It's a commitment to do what God wants you to do at the time. That's where love begins. So next is loving with all your soul. And soul is that part of us where emotions are experienced. And I'm so happy when I read in the scriptures that God loves us with heart and soul. It says that in several places in the Old Testament, and demonstrated in the New Testament, the Lord loved with heart and soul. And soul is the emotional part of us. Even today, when we talk about music that stirs our emotions, we talk about soul music. So soul is that part of us where emotions are experienced. To love with soul is to open up your emotions to be affected by one another. Now, in medical school, we were taught to understand a patient's pain and feelings, but we were warned against getting too emotionally involved with the patient. You must maintain a clinical composure so that you can actually help the person. If the person is crying in pain, don't dissolve in tears. You won't be a help to them. So what you gotta do is understand their feelings without getting involved with their feelings. You can say, I understand you're in pain, but be careful about starting to say, I feel your pain. I learned this very well, and perhaps it came out of early experiences of life, I learned how to do that well. Not to be emotionally involved with people. I learned how to keep a strong, stance and not be so affected by people. At Chitokaloki Hospital, where my wife and I served as missionaries for some years, I maintained this stance. I could be very critical, and people were hurting, and they were there was tragic circumstances, and I could maintain my composure because I wasn't that emotionally close to the situation. One day, a man came from the Copper Belt, the, the town's, and he'd come home to his village to die because at uh, 30 years of age, he had AIDS and he had tuberculosis. And he was in the hospital for a number of weeks. And because he spoke English, and it was early on in my in my uh, career at Loki, I didn't know the local language. So I could talk with Julius. And I could share things with him, and he shared things with me about his life and experience. I started to open up my heart and my emotions and my soul to Julius. And he came to know the Lord and we prayed together, we shed a tear together, and then Julius died. I had a slate of surgery that morning. I canceled the surgery because they were taking Julius out to the back uh, area of the hospital grounds where the, where the, uh, the uh, uh, graves were for people who did not have relatives. And so, several of the elders and several of the Christians and myself, we went out to bury Julius. And we stood there, as some took turns digging the hole, we wrapped Julius in, in a very simple uh, uh, blanket and lowered him into the ground and then buried Julius. Somebody gave a word, somebody prayed, and that was the end of the service. On the way back to the hospital precincts, one of the elders, Luzalo, came up to me and he said, uh, "Chimwanga, which is my Zambian name," he, he said. Uh, Today, uh, we've learned something about you. I said, "Oh, what is that?" He says, "Today we've learned that you love us." Today we learned that you love us. I said, "What?" I've been spending these months working for you at the hospital, serving you, meeting all the medical needs of the community, and now, only now, you've learned that you love. He wasn't talking about heart love. He was talking about soul love. See? And the Lord Jesus talks about it, or at least the the Holy Spirit talks about it in Romans chapter 12 and verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, John chapter 11, verse 15, the shortest verse in the Bible, the most poignant verse in the Bible, Jesus, what? Wept. wept. Jesus wept. Why? Because, you see, he allowed his soul to be, to be in touch. If we're going to love, we have to allow our souls to be in touch with one another. We need to rejoice with those who rejoice. We need to weep with those who weep. Loving with all your mind, what does that mean? Mind is the center of intellect. To love in mind is to hold someone dear in thought life and to continually hold in remembrance. If you love someone, you will think good thoughts about them. You will guard your thoughts when the, the thoughts become negative, And you will say, I've stopped loving in my mind because I'm thinking negative thoughts about this person. And you will be careful in your mind to keep it cleansed from negative thinking, critical thinking, destructive thinking, so that you can think good thoughts. Now, there is a time to think negatively when something negative is happening. I'm not talking about continually being in such positive territory in your mind that negative things don't register. Because sin happens, trouble happens, displeasure happens but then you've got to get back into the positive side of the ledger as quickly as possible. Otherwise, in your mind, you will cease to be a lover. And not only do you guard your mind from negative things and hateful things and critical things, but you also hold persons dear in remembrance. Part of loving in mind is remembering loved ones in your mind. My son, Christopher, had to go to Sakeji School, a boarding school for the early part of his education. It was 300 miles away. He was gone for three months. Some of the children did very poorly at school because they were homesick for weeks after they were separated from their parents, and rightly so, and we were sick because we missed our our son. But it was needful at the time. And uh, the teacher reported Christopher does very well in adjusting. He he doesn't he's not homesick. And so we asked Christopher one time, how do you do it, Christopher? Some of the other kids they just dissolve into tears and they're homesick for days and they they they, they have they have such a struggle. How do you actually maintain your composure and how can you actually be uh, at there at Sakiji without feeling homesickness? And he said something very profound, something very simple. He said, I forget you. (laughs) Now, you can laugh at that, you see. But there's something very troubling, you see. He closed his soul and he closed his mind to the fact that he had loved ones at home and he was separated from them, and he pretended he was an orphan. And then he didn't have to feel the pain of separation. So in his mind, you see, I'm an orphan i have forgotten my parents, and that's what helped him to maintain his composure at school. When it came to marrying his wife, he knew that he had this tendency. He met a lovely girl at school down in Ohio, where he was at college, and she came from from uh, Pennsylvania. And when he came back, he said, um, "I'm I'm going to Pennsylvania. I'm I'm going to to." Uh, uh, actually, they were living in Maryland at the time. I'm going to Maryland, and I'm going to live near Laura. And I realized what was happening. He was making sure that he wouldn't forget his loved one. So he had to move right where she was in order to keep that connection going. He knew he needed to do that in order to hold in remembrance. You see people can forget. It says in Isaiah chapter 49 verse 15, can a woman forget her nursing child? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Even a nursing mother can forget her child, but I won't forget you. A bond so, so intimate, so wonderful as a nursing mother, she can forget her child. God doesn't forget, and he doesn't want us to forget. Now listen, if you really want to learn how to love in the body of Christ at Oak Ridge, start remembering people. Hold them in your mind. Ah, this is a discipline. It requires discipline. If you're a new person here and you really want to start functioning in the, in the body at Oak Ridge, then start to love people. And one thing you can do is this. Meet one person, write their name down, pray for them through the week, and next week go and greet them. Hold somebody in remembrance for one week. Pray for them. Don't just say, God bless Oakridge." That's a nice prayer, but it's a very general one. You say, God bless Susie. And God bless Ralph. And God bless John. And you hold those names in remembrance, and you are now being a lover in your mind. Lastly is loving with all your strength, and this is the easiest one perhaps to understand. We know this one. If you love somebody, you'll give of your strength, and it might be physical strength. Delivering uh, those uh, invitations for food bags next week, it's going to take some strength. It's going to take some, some time commitment to do that, and that's an opportunity to show love. Caring for one another demands a commitment of physical Strength, a commitment of time, and sometimes a commitment of finances as well. And these are the areas of our strengths that God has given us. We all have different resources, and some have more than others. But are you committing your resources to love? Are you committing your time to be a lover? Making that call, inquiring how somebody's doing, praying with somebody, giving a gift where you know it is needed. These are the commitments of your strength to love one another. It says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, whoever has this world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against them, how does the love of God abide in him? The answer is it doesn't abide in him. The Spirit of God is in you. But you see, if you're not loving, love isn't flowing through you. And if love isn't flowing through you, the love of God is not alive in you. So, the old hymn says, channels only, blessed master, but with all thy wondrous power flowing through us, thou canst use us in every day and every hour. If love isn't flowing, it's dead. It's dead. And so the love of God is not abiding us in us if we're not having an outlet to our love. Now, some of us at Oak Ridge, frankly, have come here from week to week and we're receivers of love, but we haven't been givers yet. I'm speaking to you. We need you. We need you to commit to love us. We need you to commit to love us not for the sake of ourselves, but for the sake of yourself. For the sake of you learning to love God and become connected in this fellowship, you need to practice the communion of saints. And the more you do that, the more connected you will become. It's sad to see people come to the Oak Ridge Fellowship and they say, I didn't get what I wanted and they leave and they say to about our church, we didn't get what we wanted there, but they never, never chose to love us. If you don't love Oak Ridge, you're not connected. If you don't love the people here, you're not connected. God wants you to be connected in our fellowship. That's what binds us together. It's the mutual practice of loving one another. Loving in heart, loving in soul, loving in mind, loving in strength. If you're not there yet, this is how to get there. Repent of not loving. I call it unlove. just I may not be a hater, but I'm just apathetic. I'm not a lover. I'm not a giver. I like it when people give to me, but I'm not a giver. Repent of that. It's ungodly because God commands us to love. Commit to love others for the sake of loving God. Make that commitment every day. And I'm talking to every single one of us. All right. I've I, I long since... Left off trusting Jim Rennie to be a good lover without making the commitment. I make the commitment to love and serve God every day when I wake up every every morning. Lord, I'm going to love you and serve you, and I'm going to love God's people, and I'm going to love my patients, I'm going to love my family for Jesus' sake. Always make the commitment. Don't trust yourself to follow love without commitment, without a commitment being made. Make the commitment every day. Pray for empowerment. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. It's the Holy Spirit inside of me that empowers me to love. You can be a great lover. You can. Why? Because the Holy Spirit inside of you happens to be the greatest lover in the universe. And if you're a saint, you've got the Spirit and you can be the greatest lover. So don't say, I don't have the ability. The Spirit in you has the ability. Commit to it. Pray for it. And then just seek to practice it. Go out of your way to greet people. Go out of your way for loving greetings. Go out of your way to express some care. Go out of your way to ask people how they're doing and pray for them and intercede for them. If necessary, do some work for them. Or if necessary, give to them. This is how we love and serve one another. In that sense, you see, you'll be receiving love but you'll be a net giver. That's what God's trying to, to make us into, net givers who who just give more than we ever receive from one another because that's what the Lord's like. The Lord's just like that. He's a net giver. He's always giving more than, than he receives. May the Lord help us and bless us. Let's pray. Father, thank you that uh, you brought us together in this local congregation of saints. And as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's our, uh, the command is clear from, from our Lord to love and serve one another. And love is a commitment to give a blessing. And Lord, help us to, to love with heart and soul and mind and strength. Make us great, make us wonderful lovers for Jesus' sake. And that we might have good care of one another, build one another up in faith, build one another up in love, encourage one another, bless one another.